Please be advised that today's recording includes discussions around suicide and suicide ideation. If anything in this chat causes feelings of distress, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. He sat down next to my bed and he looked at me and, and I could see in his eyes that he was listening to voices. I don't know if you've ever met anyone schizophrenic, but, but they're kind of focused on what's going on in their mind and it shows in their eyes. It's quite disturbing. But um, so he was listening to his voices, but he also turned around to me. He looked directly into my eyes and quite gently said, I'm really worried about you. You look too skinny, you look depressed, and you really look sick. I was just gobsmacked. It was, it was the most life-changing moment I think I've ever had. And the reason being was because he, he was so ill. You know, his illness was never going to leave him. He was going to have a pretty sad life. But yet he cared enough about another human being to still ask them how they were going. I'm Jazz Rawlinson and this is Reasons to Live, your go-to podcast for inspiring stories of hope, triumph and inspiration from everyday people. Real voices, important issues, no holding back. Ready to join? Hi everyone and welcome to the Reasons to Live podcast. I'm Jazz Rawlinson, and I'm so excited to bring you this chat today with Amber Castle. Now, Amber is actually a writing client of mine, and she came to me about 14 months ago to share that she was really ready to start writing her life story. And I've got to say, I knew pretty much straight away that I wanted to work with Amber because her life story is so out of the box and so fascinating. And I think it's a story that everyone in this world needs to hear. Um, everyone needs to be inspired to live a life that's a little bit more, you know, exciting and adventurous. And Amber definitely fits that mold. Now, I've got to say, trying to explain Amber's life story is no easy feat. She has done absolutely everything. And I'm not kidding when I say that. She has done everything from appearing on reality TV to working for over a decade with Disney as a tour guide, through to traveling the world and working with animals like chimpanzees. She's even performed as the beloved children's character Humphrey B. Bear. And on the other end of the spectrum, she's also been a drag queen performer. So yes, Amber has done pretty much everything in her life and she really has lived this unconventional life. Now, when you listen to Amber, the first thing you'll probably get a sense of is just what a confident and dynamic woman she is. But what I find really interesting is that Amber went through some really, um, some really difficult and, to be honest, quite traumatic experiences in her youth. And what I love is just how she has used those adversities to really make um, a commitment to herself to just squeeze everything out of life that she can. And um, that's really why I wanted to share this chat today, just to bring you some uplifting, hilarious, funny stories um, of a life of adventure and a life that's a little bit more out of the box. I'm sure you'll enjoy this chat and I would absolutely love to hear from you once you've had a listen, which of Amber's nine lives or 
you know, crazy career moves you related to the most or enjoyed the most, send me um, an email at info at or jump in the comments and let me know. I would love to hear from you. All right, guys, enjoy this chat with Amber. Welcome to the podcast, Amber. Wowzers, thank you. That was an amazing introduction and I'm really glad I can make you laugh. <laughs> Look, right now, so many of us need a laugh. I know it's um, it's kind of a sensitive topic because I see people out there who sort of feel like we shouldn't be maybe laughing so much right now because things are so serious. But I know when I've asked people online um, about you know, what they'd really like to see more of right now in the online space. A lot of them have talked about how they want to see more comedy and they want to see more lightheartedness. So I think that hearing stories like yours are really important. So that's why I wanted to, yeah, just get together today and hear some more stories. Thank you. I I completely agree. And I think one of the main things that we need to do in life when we're struggling and going through adversity is to be able to laugh at ourselves and each other. Um, I kind of learned that very early on when I had quite a serious psychiatrist. Yeah, I think he was the first psychiatrist I ever saw. And uh, he kind of said similar to what you did, actually. I used to go in and I'd spill off all these interesting stories um, and he'd end up laughing and he'd say, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't be laughing, but, but I can't help it. Um, and it, it was actually really good therapy for me because I'd start laughing as well because I'd realise how ridiculous it would sound sitting in a psychiatrist's office and uh, this poor guy, I think he thought he was going to um, lose his licence or something, but I thought it was was great that you're able to, so to give funny. people a laugh because probably yeah. the psychiatrist is... It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever been to a, a psychologist appointment or anything and been laughing when I've been in there. And I think most <laughs> people probably don't go in there laughing either. So he, he probably felt like he'd hit the jackpot with you as a client. He must have, but um, yeah, poor guy. I, I was always really worried about his professionalism by the end of the sessions, but uh, I ended up seeing him for a long time. So, so it obviously worked. So good. <laughs> well, I wanted to just have a bit of a brief chat about where you are sort of in the world at the moment and what's going on in your life. Because, you know, for anyone that knows you, you're usually bouncing all over the place on different tours and things like that um so where are you actually at now with all of the you know coronavirus lockdowns that are happening yeah it's interesting because one of the first questions that all of my friends ask me is where in the world are you (laughs) um so (laughs) I'm currently I believe stuck in probably one of the world's most beautiful places to be in isolation so I'm in a little coastal community uh, on the mid-north coast and it's called Nambucca Heads uh it's I can't even describe it. You walk outside your door and every possible angle, there's blue ocean, blue skies, birds singing. It sounds corny, but it's absolutely divine. Um, On a funny side of it, it is a retirement village. So I'm finding there are not a lot of young people here. There are a few, but um, very hard to spot. And often you'll see people around on their mobility scooters and, you know, all the retirees out fishing and, and everybody just wants to talk to you. So you'll be trying to exercise or, or you're focusing on something and, and every five seconds, good morning, good morning. 
hello there, <laughs> good morning. Uh, but but it's such a sweet little place and so different to anywhere that that I would usually live. So it's I'm such feeling a beautiful spot. Um, I've got a couple of friends that live in Nambucca. They they must be the only young people there. I'm thinking <laughs> <laughs> from the south. Where are it. they? <laughs> um, yeah, it is such a beautiful space. Just before all of this self isolation stuff hit, when I was down in Coffs Harbour in the middle of March I was supposed to be doing some work and some workshops and yeah I went to visit some friends in Nambaka and it was just so beautiful and um it was a really nice spot to spend I guess that those last couple of days before you know shit kind of hit the fan and everything got crazy and we weren't supposed to be going to playgrounds and parks anymore and all those things but it is a really beautiful spot and I'm so glad that you've got somewhere nice at the moment to kind of hang out and just refocus and um, I think it'll be great to hear a bit more about yeah what you are doing with this time but um, to dive back you know as I as I mentioned you have been working in the tourism industry for the past would you say the past couple of decades would it be that long? Oh my gosh that sounds really terrible doesn't it but yes (laughs) the last couple of decades. (laughs) I see it as a cool thing it's like you know you've been in this industry for so long but you've also had so many jobs and done so many you know really fascinating things in that time um but yeah like I I know that when you were talking to me about moving back to um Nambaka while all of this stuff's going on um you know for, for people who are listening in who don't know about your backstory and where you were before this you were um living in Sydney and can you share a bit about where you were working and what some of the things were that you were doing um, over the past year while you're in Sydney? Absolutely. So over the last year or so, I have been working with the Walt Disney Company. Uh, and the first thing everybody asked me, what? We have Disneyland in Australia? No, we don't, unfortunately. Um, but the Walt Disney Company does run five-star tours globally. So um, I was lucky and I got the job when I was in London and um, I then managed or worked on as a tour leader and adventure guide on their Australia trip. So um, prepared to be really jealous and I'm sorry in advance, but I actually got paid to snorkel the Great Barrier Reef, uh, ride camels at sunrise in Uluru, zip line through the Tasmanian rainforests, uh, surf at Bondi Beach, kayak, uh, you name it, we got to do it. And um, one of the greatest things was being able to stay in five-star accommodation because um, being a contract and casual worker for most of my life, I don't think I've ever been able to afford that. So um, for me, it was great. I used to get into five-star hotels and I'd be able to boss around the CEO of of a five-star hotel secretly knowing that I couldn't afford to stay in one myself. So... Um, so that was my main job for, for about uh, nearly 14 years and I finished wow. that uh, over the last year. Um, I've also been working at Taronga Zoo, which I used to work at for many years and I've just gone back recently and um, part of my role there is as a guest experience coordinator. So I absolutely love the animal side of it and I have been a zookeeper as well but this particular role is uh, more customer focused. So uh, just making sure our guests are happy. Uh, that sort of thing. And also doing things like uh, day tours, 
Um, every now and again, I get to go on beautiful little flights over Sydney Harbour and uh, get paid to go on lunch cruises and, oh, and just rub get it in. <laughs> rub it I know. In. I know, but I do have to say because often when I when I talk about my work, people are, are like, "Well, why would you ever leave jobs like that?" Mm. Or, or you know, please don't complain about anything that you do with work. So it becomes very difficult because mm. you can't ever have a bad day at work, according to other people. But um, there are definitely some downsides to it. That's for sure. Mm, I can imagine because I've got friends who uh, do photography tours and things like that and some of the stories they've told me of customers and just uh, just how petty and complaining they can be about the smallest of things you know they want they want their um you know I've heard stories of they they want the most specific of diet requests and then that will be catered for them and in this specific case they were in uh, where were they? They were touring through Greenland and Iceland. So, you know, not a lot of access to fresh food and, you know, all the kinds of things we would enjoy here. And yet the tour company went above and beyond to cater for this person and all of their different, you know, supposed allergies. And then um, over lunch and dinner, you could just see these people, uh, this person like, tucking into like a steak even though they were supposed to be you know supposed to be (laughs) vegetarian and (laughs) eating things that were like not gluten-free even though they said that they had to be gluten-free and then they wouldn't eat any of the stuff that had been brought for them which was so expensive to get in you know you just hear of horror stories like that so I can definitely empathize with what you must have (laughs) had to encounter Mm -hmm. But there are definitely a lot of those stories. But I think, I, I mean, the stories end up becoming quite funny because some of them are so ridiculous. And um, part of working with the tours that I did, they were very high-end clients, so millionaires and billionaires or, or people that have saved a crap lot of money to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the one thing that I learned really quickly was some people um, are just very difficult by nature. It's very rare, though, that they're actually just not nice people. Mm. And often what it is is uh, is my particular clients, you know, many of them work in industries where they might have four or five of their own PAs at home. So the general stuff that they're having to do, the general life stuff, is often done by other people. So when they come on tour and they only have two adventure guides to look after them, they get a bit nervous and and they get a bit of OCD and and they do, they get terrified even though they're they're global travellers. But um, I think it's just a matter of, I guess, understanding that that a lot of it is still fear-based and then you kind of relax with it and and you learn how to deal with that. But in saying that as well, I mean, overall, I probably met some of the most beautiful people in my life that I still talk to daily and I absolutely love them to bits. They're positive and and encouraging and just beautiful people, really. Yeah, and I think that a lot of us would encounter that sort of thing in lots of jobs, but I guess in that kind of industry too, yeah, you you do see some of the worst of people, but you would also be seeing... Um, some really incredible things as well. So what I'm really interested to know is what actually drew you to wanting to get into the tourism industry and, and do so many of these amazing jobs, like with, like you work with animals and you've worked overseas with chimps and, 
here in Australia with all kinds of amazing animals. And um, yeah, I'm really interested to know like what it was that drew you to that and when you first realised that you did, you were really passionate about working with animals. Yeah, um, from a really early age, I've always been fascinated with animals. Um, My parents were exactly the same. So uh, we emigrated from England back in 1982. And part of the reason why we did that was because my parents always wanted a farm. They always wanted to have horses, uh, dogs, cats, things like that. As it was, we ended up with alpacas and reptiles and chooks, uh, all the most bizarre animals. And my parents ended up breeding reptiles. So from from a very young age, I'd always been around animals. I'd never really had a fear of them. I was always really fascinated by them. Um, One of the things for me as well is I guess I love talking and I love (laughs) being a storyteller. And so um, one of the things that really attracted me about working with animals was also the human component as well. So I started off actually working in zoos as an environmental educator. So we would do programs at Taronga Zoo, which is amazing. And we do like overnight stays at Roar and Snore where people would come and learn about all the different species and they get to touch and and do all these incredible things. And uh, then I started presenting things like seal and dolphin shows. I know, sorry, sorry. People hate (laughs) me for that one as well. Um, But then I, I started doing that as well. And And so I kind of had this double whammy where I was around all these incredible animals, like who wouldn't want to be around seals and dolphins every day, but I'd also be, be a show performer as well. So um, I'd kind of always come from a background. So my first career was as an actor, presenter and dancer. So I trained in that from a really young age. And, and then all of a sudden I kind of decided that I wanted to go back and work with animals and, and I thought, how can I do that without the qualifications at the time? And I thought, talking, it's got to be yep. through talking. And um, it, it just worked for me. I mean, in nowadays, so many people want to do it and you, you kind of have to find different ways to get in. But mm. um, yeah, I've pretty much found that um, I've worked my way into every job and career through personality. It, it definitely goes a long way. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting about you and your story that, you know, some people listening might not be aware, you know, anyone who's listening will obviously pick up that you are such a high vibe, you know, energetic, exuberant person. Um, But your early life was, you know, in, in so many ways, it was very different. And I find it really incredible that you have gone into this profession. And like you said, where you love, you know, storytelling, and you love interacting, and you, you know, you have a lot of confidence, and that's obviously taken you a long way. Um, but I was wondering if you could share a bit about your earlier life and what some of the really difficult, you know, because you went through some really difficult things, especially with the death of a family member when you were quite young. And I'd love if you could share a little bit about your teenage years and your youth and what some of the hard things are that you went through in those times. Yeah, definitely. Because I think for every story, there's always usually a bit of a, a back sad story. And I'm always happy to share that as well. But mm. um, you mentioned the confidence thing. And firstly, I want to, did want to touch on that because uh, I, it's in my blood. I definitely come from a family of performers. So my auntie was a Moulin Rouge and Vegas showgirl in the 50s. Wow. She got to work with her, the late Elvis. Yeah, she was really cool. 
And uh, my dad's cousin is an Oompa Loompa, so he was the main Oompa Loompa in the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie. My dad's a surrealist artist. My mum does musical theatre. So uh, we're definitely a, a quirky family. So I think that helps with the confidence. We've always kind of been that type of family. But it definitely wasn't always the case. I uh, Like everybody, you know, we have some really awful moments and I, I hope that nobody goes through those but if you're lucky enough go you most of us aren't and um so we as I mentioned before we emigrated from England to Australia back in 1982 and we didn't really know anybody here we'd never stepped foot in the country so it was quite a, a big thing I mean even coming from England which is an English speaking country of course uh it wasn't easy to settle in Australia so right from the word go of stepping off the plane here I think my family and I always felt like we were different I think that was my first sign of kind of feeling like I was different and weird and quirky and at the time of course when you're younger you don't want that that's not a positive thing um so over the years we kind of got used to it uh, we loved it we were going to stay here and then unfortunately, my brother died in a car accident when he was 17. Um, two 17-year-old boys died in the car accident. They were driving too fast and got airborne and hit trees. And um, so I was 15 at the time and my brother was 17 when he died. And, of course, it was such a major shock to my life. And um, I remember kind of waking up with the police knocking on the door and my mum screaming, Talon's dead, Talon's dead. It was um, pretty horrific. But I think probably the worst part of that was seeing my brother's body and touching my brother's body. It really sent me into a whirlwind of shock. And at 15, when you've never really faced death, and then all of a sudden you're, you're touching your brother's body and you're saying goodbye, it, um, it probably gave me a really dose of post-traumatic stress and um so our family kind of dealt with it as best we could we were here on our own the rest of our family was back in England so we really became close which, which was fabulous but I hit about 24 and I realized that I probably hadn't dealt with it in the way mm. that I should I was living in Sydney at the time and um I smoked a little bit of pot which I really wasn't a drug taker but I remember smoking a little bit and um, I ended up having a full-blown panic attack and, and, and I was in a state. I was walking down the road and I was vomiting and I was screaming at my friends at the time to take me to hospital. I, I was absolutely terrified and I think it was all that anxiety that had built mm. up. Um, so over the next couple of months, I just got worse. I, I got agoraphobic. So I, I'd moved back to my parents' house and I couldn't really leave the farm I tried getting on a train and I couldn't uh, which was very weird for me and so that anxiety and that inability to live life normally at 24 mm. then threw me into a state of very severe depression so my depression at the time was to describe it it's kind of like it's, it's a different personality so every night I was thinking of ways that I could commit suicide and and one time I went and jumped on a bridge and and kept counting down from 10 I would put rocks in my pants and walk down to the river at the back of our property and go to jump in and uh, it wasn't that I wanted to die it was more so that I just wanted to relieve myself of anxiety and depression it was awful and then one day 
or one evening my dad could see me up on the bridge and I saw him with his torch really worried and crying and calling out my name and then I realized that I needed help so I came down from the bridge and um, my folks called the crisis team and I got taken to a psychiatric hospital. Now you can imagine at 24, <laughs> especially mm -hmm. back in, in those earlier days where, mm. you know, psychiatric problems were not so accepted, uh, that was pretty bloody scary. And um, so I got taken to a psychiatric hospital and uh, I thought that was it. I thought that's the end, I've gone completely mad. Um, I was surrounded by schizophrenics, bipolars, pretty much every mental illness. And um, it, it, initially it made me much more depressed being in that environment. But slowly I started talking to these other patients and some of them were incredible artists and they had beautiful life stories to tell. But there was one particular patient and I can't remember his name, but he was a young guy. He came into the hospital and he was angry and aggressive he was only 19 and had severe schizophrenia. So basically he was never going to improve. His life was going to get worse. His illness was probably more than likely going to get worse. And uh, he came into the hospital and I hadn't spoken to him, but he would be hitting holes in the walls and he'd be yelling and screaming down the hallways. And I was absolutely mortified and terrified every time I'd see him. Wow. But uh, yeah, one day he came and sat by my bed in my room and 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 by that time I was like a blubbering mess but he sat down next to my bed and he looked at me and and I could see in his eyes that he was listening to voices I don't know if you've ever met anyone schizophrenic but but they're kind of focused on what's going on in their mind and it shows in their eyes it's quite disturbing but um so he was listening to his voices but he also turned around to me, he looked directly into my eyes and quite gently said, I'm really worried about you. You look too skinny, you look depressed and you really look sick. I was just gobsmacked. It was, it was the most life-changing moment I think I've ever had. And the reason being was because he, he was so ill, you know, his illness was never going to leave him. Um, he was going to have a pretty sad life, but yet he cared enough about another human being to still ask them how they were going. And it just blew my mind. And I, I was at the point where I was going, well, who are the mad people then? Are they mm -hmm. the people on the outside? Because they're certainly, you know, caring and considerate here. So well, that, that, that's day so incredible. Like, because I was just thinking about how confronting it must have been as a, a young woman and especially in a time where there wasn't really any awareness. I mean, even when I was, when I was growing up was like in the 1990s and there wasn't any mental health awareness then. And when would it have roughly been when you were in there? Would it have been in the eighties, would you say, or was it the nineties? So I was 24 and I'm 47 now. So it, it was a good, good mm. while ago. And yeah, you're right. There was, there was still very much a, a stigma mm. around all that sort of thing, particularly for a, for a young woman who never anticipated that I'd be in that situation. Absolutely. You know? it's, it's scary. And as I was in the hospital, there were moments where, where I almost felt like I was schizophrenic. So one of them was I was lying on my bed 
and my anxiety was so high, I was thinking about the world, which is kind of common when you have anxiety disorders where you start thinking in terms of bigger picture. And I was thinking about the earth and I started thinking about how it moves and rotates. And I actually rolled off the bed onto the floor because I could feel the earth moving. It oh, wow. far out. It was so scary. Yeah, and things like if I needed to go to the toilet, if I needed to wee, I would just do it wherever I was sitting. Um, it's embarrassing to kind of say now, but you're, you're in a totally different mindset. You know, mm. you're not healthy. You're not normal. And uh, these are some of the things that can, can happen to anyone, really. So do you feel like when you were in there, did you feel like you got the help that you needed? Like how, how was the sort of clinical care that was given in that sort of time period and that specific place, um, place where you were? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, I, I guess I want to be a bit careful with this because both of my parents worked in psych and in psych hospitals and I know how hard the work is. So yeah. I guess for me, um, the majority of them were, were caring and loving. But I think I felt at the end of it, like nobody really knows. Mm. Nobody knows how to fix anything in your mind or your mental health. Um, and that scared me, actually, because I, you always presume that a doctor of some sort is just going to fix it. But I came out of there um, not disillusioned, but just... I guess, understanding that if anybody was going to fix it, it was going to be me. Mm. And uh, the biggest impact for me was this young man. Mm. Um, As I say, he he really made me, something in in my mind clicked and I thought, you know, well, I've only got something very minor compared to him. I've got depression and anxiety, but it can be fixed. Isn't that so beautiful? Like when I was listening to you sharing that, I thought, and that's why I wanted to ask you about how you found the care in general from, um, you know, the staff there, because I was thinking, you know, what a blessing it, it must have been to have crossed paths with this young man who you initially wouldn't have thought you were probably going to have any kind of um, semblance <laughs> of a normal conversation with. But the care that he showed probably came across more strongly than the care that was shown from some of the staff there in, in the way that it yeah. felt like kind of got you or he was speaking to you more on your level most definitely because I think that deep down you know although we all believe that it can happen to anyone and it can at any time in your life sorry to be the bearer of bad news but Mm -hmm. it it can unfortunately happen and I think uh, when people work in that environment it, it is their daily kind of role and so they do forget that it can happen to them as well. And But I think when you're in that environment, when you're with people that are going through it, they're the real carers. And, and it's mind-boggling how much they really do care. Not all of them, of course. I mean, um, some people, you know, that have severe mental illnesses that are in hospital, you, you won't see. They'll just be in a corner kind of huddled. Um but I just consider myself the luckiest person in the world for meeting this young guy. And I, I feel really bad because even to this day, 20 odd years later, I still don't know his name. I remember exactly what he looks like, but I wish I knew who he was because, mm. you know, I've had a lot of people as we all do that make big impacts in your life. But that young guy made the biggest difference because from that moment on, I thought, nope, I'm going to get up. I'm going to just do it. 
whatever it takes, even if I'm walking down the street, vomiting with anxiety or screaming or being crazy, doesn't matter. I'm going to do it. So uh, that was him. Yeah, that that's so special. I kept thinking as you're sharing about that, about how incredible it would be if, you know, by some miracle you were able to find out his name and meet him one day. Like that would just be the most incredible um, experience. And I can imagine that being on, you know, one of those where are they now shows or something like that, you know. <laughs> but I think that's so special that you had that experience and he was able to help you through that time. Um, and, and so, you know, after you came out of that, obviously you began to find ways to, um, you know, really look after your well-being and start to improve. Um, but I, I remember you sharing that after you got out, I remember you saying that you really decided to use that, I guess, that trauma and those difficulties of losing your brother to really squeeze the most out of life that you could and it was kind of like you said um it was like a promise to Talon to live your life in the most you know positive and adventurous way possible and I thought that was really beautiful so I wondered if you could share a little bit about making that decision and then where that led you from there yeah it 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 took a while of course to kind of process all of this stuff that had happened but eventually I got to the point where I could have gone either way. I could have been one of those people that turned into a complete mess and turned to drugs and all sorts of things. But I kind of said to myself after Talon's death and then meeting this young guy in hospital, there came a turning point and I just said to myself, I'm going to live life for both my brother and I and this young guy in hospital because obviously it was going to be hard for him to live an adventurous and happy life. And I just, that was all I wanted. And and I was like, I'm going to do every single thing I can. I'm going to have the best life. I'm going to have the weirdest life. I'm going to have the most adventures. I'm going to try and experience every single thing I can for us three. And uh, now at 47, I'm still doing it and I still want to keep doing it. Yeah, that's so that's so amazing. Like I know so many people who have been through some really difficult things, you know, such as yourself and it can be really hard for them to find a way to create something meaningful or purposeful out of their pain and I really love the way that you did that and how you really took it on and decided that you wanted to do something um in your brother's honor. So I guess like it, it, we could, I mean, we could talk for hours about all of the incredible jobs that you've had because you've had like so many amazing jobs. But what are some of the jobs that you have gone into since that time? I love this question. This is always my favorite one. I get really excited. Um, okay, so some of the jobs that I've done, I've written down a few so I could remember them all. Uh, I started off as an actor and presenter. So I did uh, a couple of films, I did a bit of television. Uh, and that was where I trained. And then I became a film and television agent. So um, I worked for the McPherson family, actually, and and um, I would interview people to come on the books and get work in film and television. I always remember at that point, often people would come in, particularly women, and uh, I'd open their portfolios and there'd be a full spread and not really the spread that you actually want to see as an agent. So, oh, so that was great. interesting, that yes. job. <laughs> 
actually um, i do remember that, you that telling that i remember you telling that story when um when we were working on that chapter for your book and you said something like i don't think i've ever seen as many vaginas up close as i <laughs> during that time uh, i definitely didn't want to see that many vaginas i can tell you there were lots of them <laughs> Um, so I did that for quite a while and then I became a suit performer. So I've worked in about a hundred different suit characters, um, including Humphrey Bear. So I worked as Humphrey Bear for many years as the suit uh, and as the presenter for live shows around Australia. And I always used to laugh when I did that because I was quite short for Humphrey. Most of the, the people that played him were tall men. So I had to puff up my... Um, my elbows and arms with uh, all this stuff otherwise kids would say that's not Humphrey <laughs> that's um, so I also toured <laughs> as a presenter for Barney the dinosaur oh so wow. I did a whole Australian <laughs> yeah um so it was funny because I never in a million years thought that I'd be doing suit characters for a living but I actually made a really good living out of it I got to tour just so many places met some amazing people and the last one I did there for that was I worked as TG man which was a Toyota character and it was actually this suit and it, it weighed an absolute ton because it was made out of Toyota metal oh, wow. and uh, I got paid $200 an hour to stand in this suit so I was onto a cushy thing and then Steve Irwin came along and he took away all the advertising for TG man so then I wasn't oh, I know <laughs> bloody Steve. <laughs> so I presented many, many shows, as I said before. So seal shows, um, dolphin shows. Uh, I did dinosaur puppetry. So I worked for a company called Earth Visual Arts, which are an amazing company and they build life-size dinosaurs and lifelike. So they blink and they have voice boxes and I was a presenter for those. Um, I was a salsa showgirl, so I used to work at um, the casino in Sydney and I would wear the full feather regalia and I'd dance in heels for four hours at a time. I couldn't do it now. Um, of course, I've been a, a zookeeper, as I mentioned, and I've been able to work with uh, so chimpanzees, dolphins, seals, birds of prey, insects, reptiles, all sorts of quirky things. Um, one of my favourite jobs actually was working with chimps in England. I worked at an ape rescue centre um, called Monkey World. We got to hand raise two baby chimps to reintegrate them uh, into a group environment. So uh, some fascinating and amazing stories there. Absolutely brilliant. And I, I, uh, I, I do was, have to jump in really quickly because I was hoping you could share the story, which has <laughs> now become part of your book, which is the day that I ate monkey poo. <laughs> so, <laughs> because I think, you know, people have these like glamorous ideas of what it's like to work with animals and you holding these gorgeous chimps or, um, you know, swimming with the dolphins. But at the end of the day, they're, they're wild animals. And I think sometimes people forget that. So I was wondering if you could share like, you know, just in a couple of minutes, maybe some of you, the, your funniest memories of working with animals, whether it's chimps or some of the other animals you've worked with. Absolutely. So my first day of working at Monkey World in the UK, I just finished working with dolphins. So um, it was this beautiful dolphin area called the Pet Porpoise Pool in Coffs Harbour. And uh, I'd never worked with primates before and I went for an interview. I was on my way to Africa, actually, and stopped for an interview in the UK. 
And uh, they said, yeah, she'll be fine. She's worked with large animals. We'll just throw her in with chimps. Now, chimpanzees are the most dangerous animal to work with on planet Earth. Um, I guess more people, are, more keepers are killed by tigers and things because they do have contact. But chimpanzees are definitely the most dangerous animal on planet Earth. And during my interview, uh, Alison Cronin, who's world renowned as a primatologist, she said to me, now, Amber, don't think that in a few months' time you're going to be walking around holding baby chimps. And I was like, okay. Uh, I won't think that. A couple of months later, I had one chimp on each hip and I was helping as part of the hand-raising team. So I proved her wrong, didn't I? (laughs) Of course you did. Uh, You've always got to do things differently. (laughs) Back to the poo story because that's always the most interesting (laughs) one. So uh, on my first day, my manager said to me, okay, Amber, we're going to introduce you to the chimps. What we want you to do is we want you to walk down the hallway. Now, keep in mind, this hallway is very narrow and there's not a lot of room to move. So he said, don't talk, just keep your mouth shut, walk down, don't touch them, don't do anything, keep your hands by your side. It was kind of like being led to Hannibal Lecter, really. It was very scary. So uh, I did everything that was asked and as I started walking down, the chimps get a little excited and nervous it's kind of a bit of a nervous energy because you're a new person so a couple of them spat in my eyeballs it's always really offensive when they do that oh, a, couple nice. tried to, <laughs> a couple of them tried to stab me with sticks one was peeing and I tried to get away from his pee but he was on an overhead runway oh, no. grabbed hold of his willy and he followed me and kept peeing on my head oh so, my gosh I'm just like visualizing this this animal (laughs) chasing you from above just raining down (laughs) on you (laughs) it was so funny and because my boss has said don't talk I was like trying not to say anything but I couldn't help it and I'm I'm in the middle of saying is this normal behavior and as I open my mouth a chimp called Freddie through diarrhea right <gasps> in my mouth and all over me. I swallowed it. Oh, no. <laughs> and I looked at my boss just covered in poo and diarrhea and I was like, wow, okay, this is what the job is. And he said, yeah, sorry, we normally have a shield on your first day because Freddie <laughs> likes to do that and gets very scared. I'm sorry, but I forgot it. And I said, thanks very much. He said, that's all right. You're welcome. You can go to lunch now. <laughs> oh my gosh so did they have showers there for you to go and clean up after that or did you have to spend the rest of the day just walking <laughs> around in monkey monkey wee and monkey poo pretty much I uh, I obviously washed my face I wasn't feeling that hungry quite frankly to go and eat my lunch so I, uh, funny I washed that. my face and <laughs> yeah it was um definitely one of the most bizarre experiences experiences of my life and it happened a couple of times actually but I got used to it and um, then Freddie and I loved each other after that that's so funny because I mean if I don't know about other people but I think if that was me as much as I you know would probably be excited to work with animals I'd probably be like yeah I'm I'm done I am out of here now (laughs) 
after that's enough <laughs> monkey diary is too much for me um I, I think that's a funny thing people it, it, working with animals is very glamorized of course mm, and yeah. um often you are literally cleaning up crap and chopping food and then there's about five percent of the cute stuff yeah yeah I'm guessing it's not like what we see on Instagram where hot fitness models are walking around cuddling like a a monkey or you know walking around with the baby tiger placidly by their side and so aside from you know the you know some of the cool animals that you've gotten to work with and obviously not every day of your life is spent having poo flung at you thank goodness or you probably (laughs) probably wouldn't have continued it um but yeah like what are some of the other cool jobs that you've had with or or could you share a bit about like what it was like working with Disney because I know when you shared that with me I was really blown away and I had that same response as most people that you said you speak to where I was like what Disney is in Australia like I didn't know that so I, I think it'd be really cool to hear, you know, what that job involved and what some of the, the tours and experiences were that you got to be a part of. Yeah, sure. So uh, working for the Walt Disney Company was probably, uh, I, I mean, it's hard to say because I have been blessed with work, but it was probably one of the most interesting and amazing opportunities I've ever had. Um, firstly, again, because it, it's kind of five stars. so. On a daily basis, you're dealing with up to 40 guests um, and you always have a co-guide. So no matter where you are in the world, you'll always have an American counterpart uh, and they're essentially doing the same job as uh, what you're doing, but you're considered the local in the area. Uh, So our tour in Australia was uh, two weeks or just under two weeks and we would kind of fly from place to place. So uh, we'd start in Sydney and then you do all these activities like go to the Opera House, you get privately guided tours and then we'd fly to Uluru and that's where we do the camel rides. Then we'd fly to Cairns and then the Gold Coast, Tasmania, places like that. So throughout the days they're they're jam-packed because these guests pay a lot of money to experience Australia and Americans usually only have two weeks vacation per year. So you've kind of got to jam a lot in there. So we're usually jumping from activity to activity. Now, one of the most incredible things about uh, doing tours within the Walt Disney Company, because there are obviously lots of tour companies, was that each day our guests would be given a pin Um, because we know Americans love pins and those pins would actually be themed to Australia. So a good example would be on our Great Barrier Reef Day, all of our guests would be given a Finding Nemo pin. And so they'd get a different pin for each day that was themed to Australia and those particular activities that they were doing each day. So it was quite incredible. And some of our guests would would literally go on trips just to get these collections of pins. Oh, wow. (laughs) The other amazing thing was with with a company like this, it's one of the best tour companies that you can ever go on, is that when you go and do activities, you're not lining up. So you are not plebs in any way. Basically, things get closed off for the Walt Disney Company when we do tours. So I believe even places like the Vatican, when they do tours over there, completely closed for our guests. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, it's incredible. So we would have all these private activities where we'd have 
our own what we call step-on guides. So they're guides of local areas that we go to. Then you'd get on on flights. So that's the really positive side of it because, you know, you're traveling five-star as well and you're getting all these incredible experiences. So as an Australian, some of these things, I'd never experienced them. And now I've done it hundreds of times, (laughs) which does get a bit tedious. Uh, But you're experiencing this with them. The hard part is, is you, you've got to remember that you're working. So you can work up to 18 hours a day. And uh, because it's Disney, we all know that Disney has this image of being the happiest place on earth. Um, and the expectation with working with a company like Disney, totally understandable, is perfection, really. So, so you are happy 24-7. Um, now, I'm lucky because I'm naturally very bubbly and sparkly but even for me doing it for 18 hours a day could uh, get exhausting Um, particularly when you have difficult guests so I've had situations where guests have threatened to beat each other up I know very weird Um, I've had (laughs) people can't see my face right now but I'm just I'm just in shock I'm thinking (laughs) about a Disney tour which is supposed to be the most happiest place and then I'm picturing I'm picturing like some cartoon scene of people in Mickey Mouse ears like laying into each other on the ground and just having fist fights in, in their, um, you know, $1,000 designer outfits and stuff like that. <laughs> Thankfully it never actually came to blows, but a couple of times it, w- it was almost. Uh, on one occasion we almost had um, to send some guests home. They brought with them 80 kilograms of luggage each And as we all know, in Australia, it's about 21 kilos. And uh, as I opened their bags to say, you know, we've got to get rid of a bit of weight from your luggage, I opened up their suitcases and it was full of um, American snacks. So about 80 kilograms each. So that's that's just a mid-morning snack, isn't it? You know, 80 80 kilos (laughs) of um, Reese's peanut butter cups or whatever the other things are they have. Exactly. Amazing. Craziness. Yeah. So um, you kind of go for just under two weeks. You're doing the same tour most of the time. So even though people kind of go, wow, that's such an adventure, it, it does become less of an adventure when you're doing the same tour over and over again. Yeah. I was thinking about something you said earlier where you were saying, you know, obviously they are a company that's renowned for happiness and joy and always being bubbly and things like that. So I imagine it must have been really hard if you were having a hard day or you were experiencing, you know, something going on in your personal life or you were in pain and things like that. Um, You know, just being a woman, I can think of, you know, it would have been really wearing to be, you know, if you're experiencing really bad period cramps or something, or <laughs> in your case, I, um, and you might like to share a little bit about this, but you live with something called PMD, PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which has a huge impact on women's lives. Um, I think it's usually for around seven to 10 days of the cycle. And some people think PMDD is just um, really bad PMS but it's a lot more than that. And um, I think it's really incredible that you've been able to work in these highly um, customer-focused roles for so long, especially when you're dealing with like a a health condition and disorder like that. So I was wondering if you could share a bit about 
what it was like trying to manage those PMDD mood swings um, while you're working with such demanding people? Yeah, so it was interesting because with PMDD, I wasn't really diagnosed until I was kind of in the last couple of years of my tours and and the penny dropped and I was like, wow, Uh, it was such a relief to know that um, it was was a condition because as you guys now know throughout my life I, I've had very severe depression and anxiety and I definitely think that PMDD was part of it so just to clarify so with PMDD everything is times a hundred so um, you often have uh, aggression and anger and and I'm not generally an angry person but about uh, seven to eight days for me uh, before my period, I would just become so angry and agitated and and I'd have like these angry outbursts where I'd say things that I didn't actually mean. Um, and then with that comes a depression because it, it, of what you've said, it's a horrible condition. You feel like you're out of control and you feel like, wow, I, I can't help this. So I really can't help what I'm doing. So it's actually an endocrine disorder and for many women it's really hard to get rid of it and can quite often end up in a hysterectomy a total hysterectomy and that's the only relief some women get Um, but yes so being on tour with PMDD could be quite an issue so um, we used to sleep in the same room so if you had the same sex as your co-guide you would share rooms and and you can imagine after working sometimes 18 hours a day with um, you know a lot of demanding people you just want to pull off your bra do a fart and relax I so get that <laughs> so get that unfortunately uh, in these situations you can't and I would dread it I'd, I'd go through my diary and I think every time before I do a tour am I about to go through PMDD uh, before I knew I had it I'd be really worried going oh gosh am I going to get um, PMS before my period Um, but your tolerance is already very low you're absolutely exhausted and I remember a few times just my co-guides would say something really simple to me and I'd be like and I'd bite so hard at them and and it used to shock me and unfortunately it probably shocked them to the core as well and it was never aimed at them in particular it was always just something for me that was uncontrollable Um, so as well as kind of working so hard doing 18 hours a day, then I had guilt on top of that. I had the PMDD, um, because I'm getting a bit older I'm 47. Now you start working on tours and you you get things like tennis elbow. So all the, your age starts to show. Um, and unfortunately it was kind of the downfall for me because I stopped enjoying those moments and I I would just be fearful every time I got my period and I tried to explain to people or my co-guides I'd kind of sit them down beforehand and say look if I go a little loopy about eight days or on this day it's just PMS please don't take it personally Um, it's PMDD and I'd explain what PMDD was but it's really hard because often you know for women that have very normal periods they don't even understand so Mm. trying to explain it to people is pretty difficult so um when I look back I'm I'm embarrassed at some of my behavior because it is you know it's not always nice and Mm. you see yourself in a different light 
But I'm really proud of myself and any woman who suffers with this that, you know, does any job. They get up and they go and live life um, as best they can because Mm. it is really not easy. And so I'm proud of myself for that doing probably the most extreme job you could ever do with PMDD. Absolutely. Um, And 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 also for other women. Yeah, and because so many women struggle even just to be able to work with PMDD. Like one of my dear friends, she's had... She's been living with this for so long and um, she runs her own business but with her partner. But a lot of the time she, yeah, she can't be working on the business the way she wants to or as much as she wants to because she's just in so much pain all the time and she never knows exactly when it's going to hit. And like you said, it's different. Like some women might get it for the seven days, others for the 10. And it it just knocks you. Like if, if um. I hadn't heard about it firsthand from her, I probably wouldn't know about it. And I definitely wouldn't have the understanding that I do. Um, Because, you know, when it hits her, you know, she can wake up in a full blown panic attack. And she can also wake up feeling absolutely suicidal, when she's not a suicidal person. But it's like it hits like that. And, um, you know, she said, it's just this, like this heavy blanket of despair, like something's very wrong. But you can't explain it and you don't know why you feel that way. And there's no reason for it except for what's going on with the hormones. And by the same token, like an hour later or whether it's a couple of hours later or the next day, she, she's like, well, what was, what was that all about? I feel fine now. Yeah. And it, just hearing, you know, your friend's story, it really breaks my heart because it, it's, it's so hard. I mean, I think it's actually harder than, depression and anxiety in some ways um it's like this beast that as a woman just sits on your shoulder once a month and then as you said you know with your friend then all of a sudden you go back to normal to how you are and you're like what on earth was all that about and then you've got to go back and retrace your steps and work out who you need to apologize who you need to explain to um it's really devastating and you know I think anyone for any sort of illness we're we're all suffering in some way um, but it's just beautiful that we can bring these things out in the open um, not as an attention seeking thing it's more you know so people can understand and we get more education on it yeah absolutely and that's why I thought it would be so great to hear your story today just to give some some light and some hope to people regardless of whether they're struggling with an invisible illness or depression or anxiety or whether they're just having a really hard time at the moment because you know we're trying to adjust to all these ever-changing things in our society with what's going on so thank you for sharing all of that I mean I could listen to you share stories for hours because you always have a million really interesting stories (laughs) but one sort of final thing I think would be good to touch on is I know when we were talking a few weeks ago about, you know, how each of us was adjusting to what's going on with coronavirus and, you know, I've certainly felt the impact with losing work and also with just being inside all the time with my with my toddler and not being able to go and do the things we would usually do to break up the day. Um, and you were talking about what it's been like for you with basically the the whole tourism industry shutting down and there was something really beautiful that you said that I think could help a lot of people. And you were talking about how you've always seen your life as a series of chapters. And that's just how you've always looked at it because you do so many different things. And yeah, you said something about 
you know, well, I guess even though this sucks, it's just another chapter and maybe it's time to close this chapter on tourism and and try something new and maybe at the end of it I'll go back to tourism or maybe I'll be opening, you know, writing a new chapter to something else, which I thought was a really cool way of looking at it. So I was wondering if, yeah, you could share, if there's there's any words of um, hope or advice that you'd like to share with other people who are going through a bit of a rough time at the moment? Yeah, I guess for me, it is slightly easier than most women my age because um, I am child-free and I'm not married. So uh, apart from having a really small mortgage, I don't really have a lot of commitment. So <laughs> I do kind of want to state that first, that I, I totally understand that, you know, not everyone has as much freedom or um, as much choice or the ability to be able to just pick up and, and move to Sweden or, you know, to, to start a new career. And I really do appreciate that. Um, I guess I'm an extreme example of, of so many of those things. And, and there's always balance. Not everybody's like me and you probably wouldn't cope being like me, a little bit crazy and quirky, but I definitely look at um, things in my life as as chapters and for me it's always been like that so I had a, a chapter where I was dating women so that was kind of my lesbian chapter <laughs> and then I had a chapter where um, you know I was a zookeeper so then that became the, the zookeeper chapter or or the Disney guide and then I was a Disney adventure chapter um, although it sounds really strange and unusually it probably is a little on the quirky side but it's always helped me to kind of go, okay, well, that, that was a chapter. Now I can move on to the next chapter of my life. And so it's always helped me in those extreme circumstances. So I've never believed in, in just doing one thing for life. I've always kind of, whenever I'm sick of something, rather than torture myself and torture those people around me for being miserable, I will definitely move on from that. Um, so I guess that ability to kind of say, no, nope, next chapter, moving on was something that, that has really helped me to get through life, um, and to get through those extreme type situations. I think as well, um, a couple of other things that might help you guys, uh, and they might seem quite simple, but a reminder each day. So the word acceptance for me became very prevalent over most of my life. And it's not just an acceptance of like, oh yeah, that's going to happen. You have to have an acceptance deep within your soul. Um, A good example now is of coronavirus. It's like, hey, okay, I've lost my job. Um, It it sounds weird because how do you accept that you've just lost your your income? But you know, there's not going to be anything you can do about it right now. So accept the situation you're in because it's going to save you a lot more stress. And then once you're able to then move forward um, and achieve different things and get your job back, then you can look at it differently. But I guess, you know, even going right back to my brother is probably the first thing that started it. I thought I cannot do anything other than accept this. And it's not giving into it. It's just saying if I fight this for my whole life, my life is going to be miserable. Mm. And the other thing um, which I probably picked up from a lot of the Tibetan Buddhist monks, I've spent way too much hanging out with them (laughs) over the years, Uh, but one of the the best teachings they ever gave me was um, a word called Anaka. And I actually have it tattooed 
on my wrist. And the word anaka means impermanence in Buddhism. So it's basically saying that everything is impermanent. So we're impermanent. Your relationships are impermanent. Your, um, your jobs are impermanent. Uh, and that's on a positive thing. It's not, it's not a negative thing to say everything ends. Uh, to me, it's more about, again, that acceptance. Okay, so that might have not worked, but then something else will come into your life and, and everything is always changing. Good, bad, good, bad. And, and the quicker that we accept that life isn't always meant to be perfect and it isn't always meant to be good, when we accept that their life is about bad stuff as well, as much mm -hmm. as we hate it, and if you're more prepared for it, life is is much easier. And I'm in no way, you know, always really good at this stuff. Um, I often sit and look at the monks and go, yeah, well, it's great for you because you're a monk sitting in India at the bottom of the Himalayas, probably pretty easy for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I definitely think from a personal perspective, those two words and what they mean have helped me incredibly. Yeah, I, I so agree with that. And I really love that, you know, that, that personal perspective of understanding that there's an impermanence to things and trying to learn to accept things. And I think it was really great that you distinguished that, you know, obviously when somebody's lost their job, it doesn't mean it's great. And it doesn't mean you sit there and go, oh, okay, well, I accept this and I'm just going to like, that's how it is and do nothing. And it also doesn't mean that you have to instantly be like, oh, okay, well, that's chapters over. So I can't grieve and I just have to move on. I think it's really important for people to still know that it's okay to, to go through that grief and take it like a step at a time. And yeah, it's, it's definitely a tough time for everyone. But I think the more quickly we can sort of um, take that approach as you said, of, of going, okay, well, this is a chapter that's either closing or it's kind of on pause at the moment and I'm going to move forward and start working on something else. I think that's a positive thing. Exactly. And, you know, maybe it'll give people the opportunity to write their own life story with jazz, of course, as well. So, that's well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> no. no, it's definitely good. I still have some clients that I'm working with at the moment and we're working on writing their stories. So I'm hoping that, yeah, you know, I'm just hoping that people will find ways to use this time positively, whether that's writing or whether it's, you know, making music or learning to do crafty stuff, um, baking, exercising more, like whatever it might be. I think it's just important for all of us to find something positive to do with our time. So I think that's probably a really great way to maybe end today's chat too is, um, is there anything that you're working on at the moment that's helping you with just getting through this time of uncertainty? Like what are some of the things that you're doing with your time at the moment? So probably one of the biggest things for me um, is exercise, not to look like an Instagram model, uh, but for my mental <laughs> Don't health. Lie, so. Don't lie, Don't <laughs> lie. <laughs> I just want to be so glamorous. Um, <laughs> No, it's uh, more for like mental health. So I'll walk three hours in the morning. So again, I'm, I'm very lucky and, I'm, and I apologize if you don't have this available to you, but I do three hour beach walks in the morning and then I'll do an hour's river walk uh, in the afternoon. Uh, during the middle of the day, I am currently studying two courses and it's a bit of a neurosis for me because I Again, I've always done casual and, and contract work, so I'm always panicking about where my next job is coming from. 
So um, that's why I'm, I'm always studying new courses and doing new weird things. So I'm, I'm studying travel writing, which uh, in the scheme of things in this, <laughs> in this current climate is probably not going to be very useful for a long time. But hey, it's fun. And then once I finish that, um, then it'll be working hard with jazz again. To I've been um, in a bit of a slow process uh, with writing my book. So obviously you go through emotional periods where you don't feel like writing and, and it gets really hard. So uh, jazz has kind of really helped me through that. So that would be the next on my agenda is to kind of really knuckle down and get my teeth into that and hopefully... Um, with jazz editing we will have a bestseller how good would that be <laughs> that would be amazing and I would not be surprised I'd actually be more surprised if it wasn't a bestseller with all the stories that are going to be in there because what people have heard today is only a snippet of your very um, crazy and adventurous lifestyle so <laughs> Uh, if anyone's been listening and you've been enjoying Amber's stories, I would recommend that you, yeah, give her a follow on Facebook or online and um, keep in touch with her. So thank you so much for sharing your stories today, Amber. I mean, I could listen to you forever, but can you share, you know, if you've got like a Instagram or a blog or anywhere that people can keep up with what you're doing and your writing? Absolutely. So my Instagram is monkeying around 72, monkeying around, monks, monkeys are monkeying around the world. Um, so definitely follow me on Instagram. Um, I'm writing a blog. It doesn't have too much on it at the moment, but that's also called monkeying around. And uh, on Facebook, it's under Amber Castle. So I would love to hear from you. I love hearing other people's stories. Um, one of the things I always say to Jazz, doing this sort of stuff, it tends to make you feel a bit narcissistic. <laughs> But in the hope that um, spreading, you know, positive outcomes out of some tragedy is really going to help other people. And, and that's why I want to keep doing it. And that's why I would love for, for so many other people that have had tragedies and, and have really interesting stories to, you know, perhaps write that book with jazz or, or share your story as much as you can because it, it, you're going to feel narcissistic but it is the most important thing that other people feel like they're part of something and, and they're not totally different or weird or wacky. Um, and even if you are weird and wacky like I am, great. We'll have a new tribe of people. 